I thought uh, we try to uh, we discuss a lot about tongues last week, right? Um, maybe a couple of things that we did not touch was you know, in Acts we find tongues being spoken thrice, okay, and then you also find uh, that's being explained or corrected in First Corinthians. In Acts we find it. Now in chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes down and the church begins, it's a new era where uh, the Jews um, are into the church. After that, we find the, the second incident that we find is in, in the home of Cornelius, where Gentiles are being brought into the church. The third um, Wherever is it? Acts 17? The one where the disciples of John, right? 19, 19. Uh, Acts, 19 Acts 19, verse 7, probably, where it is the uh, disciples of John who had not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, put their trust. So it is, you know, there are three different groups joining into the church, and it was kind of a sign that was you know, part of the church. and the Lord is doing something new. And of course, in First Corinthians, we find that uh, they had taken it to another level and uh, it is being corrected there rather than yep. there's, there's no encouragement to go on speaking in tongues. The real thing is to, yeah, you focus on uh, gifts that are more profitable to the church. And Rabichai now, if I yes. can, uh, just going back to those three instances in Acts, I, I think it's very clear that why that was needed, right? Because uh, uh, again, um, you know, on the first day of Pentecost, uh, clearly that was an indication that that something had happened there. And then um, the Jews had this, uh, the Jewish believers who they were all Jewish believers in the early days. They had this notion, uh, as we see later on with a lot of the conflicts in the early church that that this was only for the Jews, right? And uh, and so God was using it as an outward manifestation to show that um, that even the Gentiles, uh, you know, could receive the gospel and, and become part of the church. In fact, in fact, Peter, when uh, when he um, in the incident of Cornelius, which was the second one you said where they spoke in tongues, you know, he said uh, he says very specifically, I don't have it in front of me, but something to the effect of, uh, can anyone deny? these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have, right? Um, uh, and the way they knew that received the Holy Spirit was because they spoke in tongues, because receiving the Holy Spirit is something that's not visible externally, but, but during that time for that purpose, God provided that external sign of speaking in another language. Um, and therefore it was clear that the, the so-called Jewish, uh, not so-called, but the Jewish believers couldn't say, well, you know, these people are not uh, eligible for, uh, you know, baptism and being part of the church, right? And then, of course, the same thing with the John's uh, disciples as well. So, so definitely there was a clear purpose, which is really no longer operative. That purpose no longer exists uh, in this day and age. So, so yeah, that's, that's a very good, uh, good point to clarify. And then First Corinthians 12 is, it's of course, giving correctional advice rather than promoting it. Uh, the main thing that we see in present day practices is that 
it is being promoted and encouraged and if if that is not there you are being condemned none of this is the purpose of first corinthians 12 it is to correct what was there and probably discouraging them rather than encourage and um, signs and wonders also we talked about in hebrews chapter 2 uh, it is uh, talked about in the past tense where it says the lord also bore witness by working these things so it is already in the past it's not something that is still in operation signs and wonders are continuing so this is the truth no signs by signs and wonders performed the lord has already attested and uh, when we look back uh, when we come uh, 2000 years forward uh, there is no reason to believe that uh, those kind of signs and wonders is being uh, mandated by the scripture or even that the scripture expects those things to happen contrary to what some people would like to say how oh, we need to have the same kind of signs and wonders as in uh, first century otherwise it is because of lack of our faith blah 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 yeah so that was what i wanted to say about it uh, any more questions on it we can discuss privately probably because we have dealt a lot on it if there is anything very important about it you can mention it mention it otherwise we'll go to the next question i'll just make one comment on it uh, rebichan and then we'll uh, move to the next question um like you and george and rightly said it's god's way of moving things forward to a point where paul is able to write to the church at the churches of galatia that now there's neither jew nor greek slave nor free male nor female for you're all one in christ jesus so it is to show that everybody jew gentile old testament believers all of them are baptized with the same spirit and we're all part of one body all right so question 8 says uh, it is again from the same chapter don't be gullible in the book that we are studying by uh, william mcdonald question 8 says is it right for women to preach or occupy positions of leadership in the church so i think the question is uh, specifically about leadership in the church and preaching in the church let's go to for a moment um, 1 timothy chapter 2 and verse 12 i'll read from verse 12 and on but i do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet now here is a reasoning that paul is giving for it was adam who was created and then eve and second reason it was not adam who was deceived but the woman being deceived fell into transgression but women will be uh, preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self restraint now notice what paul is saying here paul clarifies here that there are two specific elements that women ought not to do number 1 is teaching in the public worship service number 2 is exercising authority in the church when you continue reading uh, in the letter that paul wrote there were no um, chapter divisions it was added later on but in the entire letter that paul wrote to timothy the next section immediately is talking about the qualifications of an elder and paul contrasts the exact same concepts there and he is talking about public teaching and authority so paul seems 
clearly to be limiting women to non-teaching roles in the church and specifically excluding women from the office of the elder. And the reasoning he gives uh, has nothing to do with any kind of a culture or the city of Ephesus or the first century Greco-Roman world. He is basing his arguments on two things. Number one is the objective fact of creation. He says it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. And then number two, also something that affects and has affected all of us, which is the objective doctrine called the fall. It was not Adam who was deceived first, but the woman who was deceived and fell into transgression. So for these two objective reasons of creation and fall, Paul is saying that uh, women ought not to have a teaching ministry in the entire church, and also they cannot hold the office of an elder. But uh, women have a lot of ministries that Paul himself lists that they can do. Uh, Titus chapter 2 lists that for us. We don't have time to get into that. You know, older women can teach, younger women, women can teach in other ministries and all of that. But Paul is only limiting women uh, that they ought not to take up a teaching ministry in a public worship service when the church gathers together and also not have, ex uh, not have uh, authority over men. Hey, Revant Kishore here. Yes. Uh, so uh, when you say public ministry or public speaking in the church, mm -hmm. so if there are, does that mean in the presence of men that women aren't allowed to teach? Would that be a, a correct understanding? That would be right. Yes. Okay. So in that context, so then would mm -hmm. our, our current settings of cell groups, the way we meet, would that exclude women from teaching there as well? Yeah. Yes. I would think so because that's that's what Paul is saying here. They're excluded from a teaching ministry where where people are gathered together, especially where you know they cannot have authority over men, is what Paul is saying here. Okay. All right. Yeah, so so the it's it's about leadership and, and authority, right? So uh, so certainly, you know, uh, as Raven said, they, they do have certain ministries, ministries to women. Uh, but but again you know uh, certainly there's certain latitude in how you actually implement it so for example if you're you know some would say if you're having a bible study women can't ask any questions you know does that is that really necessary or not again those are things that the, the, the those kind of details as far as how do you practically implement not having authority you know, is something that's left to the local church to figure out and the elders to, to implement, right? So, so there is always a fine line there that uh, that we got to be aware of and careful about. Uh, but the, the key thing is, you know, are women in doing that, uh, whatever it is that they're doing, okay, are they uh, assuming authority over uh, the male leadership, okay? Uh, which as Raven said, again, a uh, lot of people say that's a cultural thing, Paul was writing in a time where women were viewed a certain way in culture. This is no longer true. Uh, but, but I, and I think that's why Paul very clearly says, gives a reason for it, right? Which we can't really object to. Uh, I don't know how people work their way around it, but uh, you know, he says Adam was formed first and then Eve. And, uh, and, and maybe it's partly the reason why this is a controversy and a, um, you know, a, even an issue is partly because you know we view the whole male female dynamic 
you know, from the point of view of the fall okay, or after the fall. That's the only thing we're used to. Uh, and unfortunately, when the fall happened, that, that created that whole, you know, enmity between men and women, which, which is, you know, again, explained or prophesied, I suppose, in, in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, but when God first created, there was no such conflict. Uh, you know, for whatever reason, he created Adam first, not Eve first, right? Uh, and uh, then he created Adam to be the helpmeet and the companion. And clearly that relationship between them prior to the fall was a very different relationship. There was no conflict. There was no, uh, you know, there was no, um, you know, issue in that relationship that all the, the negative dynamics came in as a result of the fall. And we are sort of used to that. And of course, all the cultural baggage that comes with that. And the fact that because of the fall, men have, men have established sort of a physical superiority and a social superiority and subjugated women over time and use them or misuse them in certain ways. All that sort of comes into the play and people sort of apply that to, to scripture and say, well, that's being backward, that's being uh, discriminatory, that's being... Uh, you know, but if you go back to before the fall, none of these was was even an issue, right? So, so a lot of the negative negativity around this topic is really a result of the fall, and we need to just recognize it as such. Rabichan, you want to add something? No, I I think it is pretty clear from what he said. It's more about the role rather than you know, uh, the role of leadership is with men, as as it is mentioned there. But that does not mean that men are to be domineering and subjugating the women in any respect. And that's what we see all around. Yeah, and it's reaction to that that we see in the society. Yeah, and and I, will, I will also say that uh, the church itself has probably not handled this very well. Uh, in that uh, we, we have, in effect, in a lot of, lot of local assemblies, probably not given women their, their due, uh, sort of taking this and misapplying it to mean that, you know, women have no role, they have no ministry, they have no, uh, they're not encouraged, they're not, you know, that, that is also wrong, right? And that's also what leads to sort of a reaction, uh, I think, and, and, and controversy. So, so we need to have some balance there, uh, while obviously not violating what is clearly laid out in, in scripture, right? In, in First Timothy chapter 2. And, and even those who practice those things have no problem singing the songs written by Fanny J. Crosby. <laughs> and many others. <laughs> many other women. <laughs> okay, we'll move forward if there are no comments or questions. Hey, Raven, uh, this is Tanya yes. here. Uh, okay, so I have a question. Now, if, is this with respect to a church setting or, or, or anywhere we go? Now, suppose we go on a mission trip, okay? And then uh, now if, if we go to a place where there are men and women, okay? And, you know, there are, they're believers. Is it okay for a woman to share from the word there or is, is it not okay? Now, what is... Yeah, so, so Tanya, if, if, you're, if you're saying in a church setting where there are men, uh, you know, there's certainly absolutely nothing wrong if you minister to the women and you share the word or share a testimony uh, or, uh, you know, do that, right? But, but again, uh, like I said, you know, where to draw the line is always, uh, you know, wh when do you cross from 
exercising authority or not exercising authority to cause to exercising authority right so so in order to sort of avoid that we have to put certain practical i'll say restrictions or boundaries around it right so uh, so and and obviously sometimes you are uh, you know you are on the side of caution there because we don't want to violate what is a clearly um, you know clearly laid out principle and and certainly in a given situation whether a woman by speaking depending on what she says and how she instructs and who she instructs you know she uh, some may view it as she's exercising authority some may say no she's not right so for example in in a lot of kerala churches of all places kerala assemblies uh, they actually allow women to um, you know to uh, give their testimonies okay so after the the, the breaking of bread they'll have sort of a open time of testimony where uh, you know where where any woman can get up and give a testimony of how the lord has uh, blessed them or done some healing or whatever in their life and read a psalm or something read a passage and and sit down right and sometimes some of those people do start giving a little bit of upadesham or teaching as they call it okay so um, you know is that crossing the line or not crossing the line i i think that's something you know the elders of of each church need to need to decide how are they going to establish those boundaries so that we are not going to violate the uh, the clearly laid out principle in scripture yeah that that helps you rich and good just to go back to the scripture you know aquila and priscilla so they found that <clears throat> there was this guy that was full of fire and teaching apollos apollos so, so he needed to be corrected so they invited him home and corrected his teaching and uh, in that home setting there is nothing clearly set out there but definitely priscilla was part of that ministry and i don't think it was just cooking probably <laughs> <laughs> she also must have given her input and sat down and talked you know so uh, definitely when you talk about um, holding the line of the doctrines and all that teachings uh, the clear instruction comes uh, in first timothy that uh, the teaching should remain with the uh, male leadership and it's not all males the leadership that the church has put out the church uh, the lord has put out the church uh, just a point over there uh, there's some understanding that people give where you say adults are uh, i mean adult men are not permissible but kids are not a problem uh, kind of a understanding that comes also You, you mean yeah. like for women to teach kids? Correct, correct. Yeah. Yeah. So again, that you know, so so women, uh, you know, if you if you go to that, uh, you know, Titus two passage and all, it talks about loving their their children and loving the husbands and all these kind of things. So so again, I I think there is no scripture that specifically says, okay, so uh, that that specifically says, okay. you know these scenario a b c d it's okay f h i j it's not right so it doesn't say uh, you know so so when you start getting into those things okay so what is the age is it 12 is it 13 is it 14 i mean i know i knew one brother uh, in an assembly i was in in the us uh, many many years ago uh, probably some 30 years ago 25 years ago who who insists he had three boys okay three boys and um, 
you know, and, and I think he was, I guess he was an elder at some point. But he had this thing that he followed, which was that once my boys reach 13, I don't want them being taught by a woman Sunday school teacher. Okay. Um, that was the way he chose to apply. Um, you know, but, but to be honest, the scripture doesn't give those kind of things. So to the extent that anybody tries to justify that from scripture, it's not explicitly spelled out in that way. Okay. I think it just goes back to the principle, which is, you know, are they exercising authority? Okay. Over, over men. How do you define that? How do you practically, uh, apply that? Okay. Uh, and uh, and you just have to look look case by case, and and that's why the elders are provided to a church, to you know elders who are led by the spirit and have knowledge of the word and understand the local context and 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 uh, all of these things and are able to make those judgments. Okay, so we cannot uh, we cannot establish a completely right and wrong and say okay, well in this case in this church they allow it till fifteen, in another church they allow it till thirteen, whatever. You know, therefore, this is wrong. That is right. Okay, so where scripture is silent, uh, I think I wrote this in that, or we wrote this in that uh, document on the Lord's Supper. Okay, where scripture is silent, uh, you know, we should not impose our own views and restrictions on others as as hard and fast doctrine. Okay, but we give freedom to the elders in the church to decide that. Okay, and uh, and leave it at that. Ravi, uh, Chang, you want to add something? I, I, I think we are good with that. Uh, maybe one more situation might be you lead somebody to faith and sometimes it's a woman who happens to uh, lead someone to faith and the initial um, uh, guiding of that believer to the scripture till yeah, he's actually handed over to some other person might be done by a lady. So um, is, it, is it teaching? If you, um, you, you can say that it is teaching, but it is um, it's not exactly that kind of teaching that is being mentioned in First Timothy. Yeah, and I think it's important, again, going back to what Raven said, that whole First uh, Timothy 2, uh, you know, the context there is all about the church, right? Uh, you know, it talks, talks from verse 8 about men in the church, what are they supposed to do, women in the church, how are they supposed to adorn themselves? Uh, how are the elders in the church supposed to be? Uh, you know, what are their qualifications, right? So, uh, so clearly, so you know, somebody giving the gospel to somebody one-on-one, -on -one, which is what we are all commanded to do, right? We are all commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So you can't then, if you want to go to an extreme, you can say, well, then women shouldn't do that either, right? There's they're exercising authority over a man. I mean, if they happen to share the gospel with a man, so I think. Um, um, you know, uh, that, that's, um, that's what I would, uh, I would leave it at. Sneetal, you had a question? Uh, it's more like a clarification of sorts, uh, in the sense that uh, if I am led um, on a Sunday while at church to pray audibly or to exhort from the word, since as a uh, being a woman, if I'm exhorting from the word, there could be some sense of, I don't know, would that be taken as teaching? Uh, would that be, you know, exercising authority over men? Or are we open? Okay, uh, a similar question here, I got privately, both those questions could be answered together. I'll just read that out uh, to all of us. Could you also point out whether it is right for women to worship 
whilst they may not be involved in teaching. Uh, we both agree that it is okay for women to audibly participate in worship, uh, but um, uh, we have uh, we have thought it prudent um, uh, to maintain something that has been there so far, and at the right time, maybe we will reconsider how those things should be implemented. Yeah, so, yeah, no, I, I can add a little bit to that. Uh, so uh, again, you know, I, I think the principle that both Rabbi Chan and I have always, and this is something that we have always had a meeting of the minds on and why we, I, I think, it, I don't know how many years we've been together on this, six years, seven years? Uh, six and a half, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we've never had a disagreement on any, any subject or on any matter actually, which is quite surprising. Um, uh, but uh, the reason is in our in our own personal view of things, uh, you know, we we try as much as possible to uh, to stick to what Scripture says. Okay, so if Scripture explicitly restricts something, uh, then yes, we believe it should be restricted. If Scripture doesn't restrict something, then we believe there is room for uh, the judgment of the elders uh, to arrive at it. Okay, so. Uh, so again, it comes back to what I said earlier, okay, in the church setting, what exactly constitutes a woman having authority over a man, okay, uh, or, or taking leadership, okay, as, as it says in First uh, Timothy chapter 2, right? Uh, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, okay? There is, th that calls for a judgment uh, call there because Paul is not defined again, you know, very clearly checklist that says all of these things, you know, are not. And the fact is that every, every church, every assembly is taking a judgment call. Okay? So for example, even in brethren assemblies where they're very strict about women not speaking, they allow women to sing. Okay. Right. They allow them to sing. Well, if you want to be very strict about it, you should say they should keep quiet and not open their mouths, period. Okay. If you really want to be uh, strict about, but they allow to sing, okay? But they don't allow them to do other things, okay? Some of them, as I said, allow them to give a testimony, but they don't allow them to give a thought or say a prayer or, or whatever, right? So, so I think what Rabbi Chan was saying there is that as we look at scripture, we don't see a very clear line of, you know, these three things are allowed and these are not. Uh, that's something that each church under the leadership of the elders need to decide. Now, having said that, then you say, okay, well, why don't you, uh, why don't you allow certain things, okay? Because uh, so personally, we do not believe that it would be scripturally wrong to allow a woman to definitely to pray and praise, okay? Maybe even call out a song or any of those kind of things because we personally don't think that's taking authority. Now, why do we not allow that? We have chosen not to allow it because uh, we also need to consider certain other things, which is the, the context in which uh, where we have our origins and the context in which we exist today. And, uh, and we do recognize that it would cause uh, a significant amount of controversy, okay? And we have taken a look at that and, and, and we believe we have a ministry, uh, uh, you know, we have a ministry to a certain segment of people who, um, who find that they coming to a CBF, get ministered to, get an opportunity to minister, to grow, uh, and, um, you know, many parents send their kids, parents from very conservative background uh, and have brought up in a different environment, send their children to, uh, 
to us and we believe we have a ministry to them. So, so what we have done is we have taken a look at that to say, okay, if we were to open this up and, and, and loosen the so-called restrictions, what impact would it have on that ministry? Okay, and is that, is that going to be a negative impact? We believe there would be a negative impact. Uh, and it's not that we are afraid of what anybody else would say. Uh, you know, we're happy to defend ourselves from and hold to position. Uh, but in the in the overall in our overall evaluation of things, uh, you know, we we believe that uh, that the downsides of that would be much greater than um, at this point in time. Okay, so I'll, I'll qualify it that way. Uh, you know, at this point in time, uh, you know that 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 there would be a significant downside that we we don't think we don't feel led by the Holy Spirit to move in that direction at this point in time. Okay, uh, now change maybe I don't know. Uh, you know how how the spirit moves in these things, but but that's sort of the. the yeah, I guess for me also the. Sorry, sorry. Uh, no, I was just saying. I, I think for me, uh, the thought that kept going on in my mind is even if our members are okay because they know you probably on a personal level, there are so many people who keep visiting church who come right. from different, yeah. um, you know, atmospheres yeah. of a church. So they may not be comfortable with it, and just to be mindful of that, I guess, is also yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're, you're absolutely thinking. right, and 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 again, I think for us, it's not so much the visitors as much as you know. We we do believe that uh, a lot of uh, you know is a very good possibility that uh, again, you know, we we can completely extricate ourselves from the the cultural situation in which God Himself has placed us. Okay, so. So, uh, you know, I believe what might happen is a lot of parents would say, okay, they are heretics, don't send, you know, I'm not going to send my kids there, okay? Uh, and, um, you know, uh, at this point, we're not willing to, to go down that road, okay? We don't feel led to go down that road because, again, there are, there are pluses and minuses to every decision we take. Uh, but we do believe this is, a, this is a judgment call to be made by the elders uh, of the church. Uh, you know, it's just that at this point in time, and we and both of us are quite uh, aligned on this that uh, while while we have our personal views and we believe those can be defended from scripture you know from a practical perspective for the reason you said as well as the the way that uh, you know some of the, the the families of our young people would would react to it uh, and the only and our only concern in that in that respect is not the reaction of the others but it is that uh, it, it shuts us off from what we believe is a very important ministry that the Lord has given us, which is to minister to some of these young people who are coming from uh, very, uh, maybe uh, bad experiences in the church, in the assemblies, uh, who have been brought up in a situation where their faith is really not very real, uh, sad to say, okay? Uh, and, uh, and, and, and they need to really be... Um, uh, you know, really be challenged regarding the, the, the true walk with the Lord, right? And, and we don't want to do something that would, that would sort of, uh, you know, that would sort of uh, negatively impact that ministry, which we believe uh, the Lord has specifically given to, uh, to CBF, okay? Sure. George, just one last clarification. Does this, does this imply that it's okay then for us to pray audibly in a cell group setting? Definitely. Okay. Okay. Thank you. 
I have two private questions here. Um, are we going ahead with this question still? Darchan? I have two questions. This, this one, the same one. Now, are there anything new? I mean, the questions were. Um, yeah, it says if Paul appeals to the created order for male leadership, why do we stop at applying this to the church? Shouldn't it apply to work, government, etc.? Uh, the simple reason I think would be Paul specifically takes the application to the context of a church. Um, he is writing a pastoral epistle, as we call it, and so he is applying it uh, to the context of a church. Um, next question is: I was once taught by someone that Eve actually was part of Adam's body. And God just separated her from his body to make her human. They said that the word used for rib in Hebrew was the same word that would describe being attached to. Uh, the point they were trying to make was that Eve wasn't an afterthought of God. Is this true? Yeah, it's Hebrew. I don't know the Hebrew uh, word for the rib, but I do know from the English Bible that it is a literal rib that was taken out of Adam's body. And... Uh, if a rib is taken out, obviously it is attached to his body and it was taken out. So uh, probably in a metaphorical sense, uh, she was literally taken out of that body, but it was literally a rib that was taken out and fashioned in the shape of a woman. Uh, again, uh, that's the reading, that's the natural reading of the text. I, I didn't get the point of the question, Raven. What, what, what is the point of the question? Okay, so if... Uh, <laughs> The two questions I mean, are... How does it relate to what we're discussing? I don't know. You should ask your daughter. <laughs> the second the second question, the one about the rib. Uh, the second one, uh, the, the point they were trying to make was that Eve wasn't an afterthought of God. Is this true? Yeah, uh, I, that's I, true. Yeah, that's true, right. Yeah, it's not an afterthought of God, I think. Yeah. yeah I mean, nothing is an afterthought of God. I mean, uh, in the case of God, I'm not sure what what afterthought means in that context. Like, you know, God didn't go, wasn't oh. just sort of, uh, yeah, I, I think she meant uh, God created Adam first and then, oh, you know, I need to create one more for him. No, that was not the idea. God had planned all along in his grand sovereign plan that he would create a woman uh, at the right time. Um, okay. What about ministering to unbelievers, men and women alike, who see the inequality between the men and women in the world? And get discouraged when they perceive the same in the church. Okay. Uh, I th see. Uh, there is a difference here. Uh, we are not looking at any inequality of any sense between men and women in the church. We are not talking about any inequality in our standing before God. And that's why I just quoted Galatians 3.28. And let me quote that again. Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Uh, in our standing before God, in our justification, in our approach before God, all of that, uh, we are all one before God. There is no difference at all. But there is a functional submission. It's a role that is given. Uh, and that does not mean any kind of an inequality in essence of the person or of a standing before God. And that's also seen within the Trinity as well, in terms of how they relate to the world. You see God the Father, God the Son, the Spirit, all of them one in essence, one in substance, all having the same equal attributes, and yet Christ in his incarnation, there is a functional submission to the Father. And that's why he, he could make statements like the Father is greater than I, uh, things like that. Okay, Ravent, I think, uh, I think we've uh, covered this uh, extensively. Let's move on to the next question. Okay. Uh, ninth one. 
to what extent should we trust our feelings in spiritual matters? Um, there are a couple of things that uh, we need to understand before we move on to feelings. Number one is, Paul says very clearly in Ephesians 6.12 that a battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the kingdom of darkness. Uh, that's one thing. And the second thing is, Hebrews 3.13 talks about the deceitfulness of indwelling sin. Now, these two forces, the fact that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the demonic forces, the deceitful forces of evil, and the fact that there is the deceitfulness of indwelling sin, they do act and try to use our emotions against us. Now, God has given us real emotions. They are real. Uh, they are to be gauges for us and not to be our guides. By that, I mean they are meant to report to us what reality is, but not dictate to us anything. Uh, the Bible also talks about the pattern of our emotions, giving us a reading on where our hope is, because our emotions are at the end of the day wired into what we believe and what we value and how much we value. And that's why the Bible talks about emotions like delight, affection, fear, anger, joy, etc., etc. And all these are very important in the Bible. They reveal to us what our heart loves, what our heart trusts, and what our heart fears as well. But like I said before, our emotions are wired also into our fallen natures. And therefore, sin has access to it. And Satan also will have access to it. And they will try to use uh, our emotions to manipulate us, to act faithlessly. Uh, I want to give you an illustration here, but we don't have time. So let, let me just finish the answer here. Uh, by saying that, Peter is saying this, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom uh, he may devour. So he will is likely to trap and tap into our weak areas of unbelief, and we may find our emotions surging in the wrong direction as well. Uh, so when that happens, uh, I would always say, and I always tell people, that uh, remember that our emotions are just gauges and not guides. Let them tell you where the attack is being made so we can fight against it with all the promises that we have in the word of God. Uh, perhaps go to a trusted friend for prayer, get the right perspective from the world and get counsel if you need to. Uh, again, I would go back to Ephesians 6 in the same context where Paul is talking about uh, the whole armor of God. Uh, you have six things that Paul talks about plus prayer as well as the seventh thing. So you have the whole armor of God, and that is the answer and antidote to all of these problems. Uh, but in the end, I would like to summarize and say it is God and his word that should inform our feelings and not the other way around. When we are tempted to listen to our feelings and our feelings are overwhelming us, we need to stop, pause, and take a look at God's word and compare what we are feeling to what he's actually saying. That's the way I would answer the question. Yeah, I, I think uh, uh, the, the important thing is, you know, our feelings can deceive us, right? Uh, and uh, the extent to which your feelings are, are coming, um, you know, are aligned with the word of God is in many ways, you know, goes back to Romans chapter 12, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So it depends on the, the extent to which your mind has been renewed, is being renewed. Uh, all of us are not at the same level of spiritual maturity so uh, you know so so the, the the antidote to that is always 
okay, feelings are good, feelings are natural, feelings come. You always go and examine your feelings uh, against the word of God. Okay, so any feeling that that violates what the word of God teaches is, is not from God. I mean, it's, it's from something else. Okay? It's from our own flesh. It's from Satan, whatever. Uh, so, so I think you always, and that's the, the beauty of the word of God is given us the word of God to, for that very purpose. And again, I'll go back to my pet, uh, my pet theme, which is, you know, you won't know whether your feelings are right or not, unless you know the word of God. So, so, um, you know, if, uh, <laughs> Yeah, and you won't know the word of God unless you study the word of God, which is why there's no shortcut to growing as a Christian. Uh, the number one uh, prerequisite is to study the word of God, right? As you study the word of God, it all, it's a system. It works together. You know, you, you're, you're getting knowledge of the word of God. You're implanting the word of God in your heart. You're being, your mind is being transformed as you act it out and as you live by it, your, your, your thinking is getting changed. And then eventually what will happen is your feelings will be very well aligned, right? When, when God says, you know, if you pray, um, you know, when you talk about praying with the will of God or, or whatsoever you ask, it will be given to you. Uh, you know, that only happens when you have the discernment to pray according to the will of God, right? How do you get there? How do you know that? Again, it, it is all about your spiritual maturity and your growth uh, and uh, where you are in, in, in that whole mind transformation zone. Uh, the other thing might be that uh, you try, it's the same thing whether you um, trust your mind as well, unless it is a transformed mind. So even the mind has to be transformed and be guided by the scripture rather than secular logic. So it's not only about emotions or logic, it is about the scripture. Okay, next one. Uh, a popular teaching is that you can't love God if you don't love yourself. Um, I think, I think uh, in the context in which William MacDonald was writing it, uh, so he was talking about the philosophy of self-love. I think the philosophy of self-love is based on the idea that humans are fundamentally good and they are lovable. And uh, when self-love does not seem to work and we are dissatisfied, that is because of our own blindness, because we can't see we can't just see how beautiful we are really on the inside. Um, so that is the philosophy of self-love. But from scripture, we know very well that self-love is unsatisfying. The problem is when we look inward for love of self, uh, we know very clearly from scripture and also from experience that we are sinners. And when sinners look inward with clear eyes and especially with an understanding of scripture, we don't like what we see on the inside. At least we should not like what we see on the inside. We see sin in almost all aspects of our lives. Uh, we can see that we are deeply flawed. Um, so the philosophy of self-love uh, does not work very well because it promises that if you look inward, uh, you will find a way to love yourself and you will find peace. Uh, but that's not true. Uh, scripture tells us that. Personal experience tells us that. Now, very quickly, when you, if you remember what Paul writes to uh, uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he goes on to say that in the last days, people will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Um, so there is a way in which a love of self can actually usurp the rightful place of God in our hearts. Uh, when Christ calls us, he genuinely loves us and embraces us and having fulfilled all the conditions himself for our full acceptance. 
But in the same act, uh, he also calls us to hate our old nature and lay it aside. That's why all these uh, Pauline injunctions, Ephesians 4, it says, put off your old self and put on your new self. Strive for the renewal of your mind. That's what we were talking about right now. Deny yourselves. All these exhortations are given to us. So God does not simply want us to achieve a heightened acceptance of ourselves, but he desires our sanctification. I love I love what Paul says to the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, he says, this is the will of God for your life, your sanctification. So I think true love, our true self-love, is acceptance of ourselves as redeemed people. Yes, we are loved, we are accepted, but not because of what we are on the inside, but precisely because of who Christ is, that we are loved and accepted. So in that sense, yes. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to ask, uh, so if, if I have a right understanding of God, and if I learn uh, about him and start loving him, then I love myself rightly, right? Yeah, that's right. It'll be put in the right place. Okay. Yeah, I, I think we, we have to find our worth in, in the way God looks at us, right? Not, uh, I think yeah. the world thing of self-esteem and all is, is sort of going in a separate direction. It's, it's a very humanistic kind of, you know, uh, approach rather than a God-centered approach. Another 11th question. Another doctrine being floated around is that a Christian never confesses his sins. He just thanks God that he has been forgiven. First John 1, 9 has the answer. I mean, uh, yeah, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But very quickly, yeah, and, also, and, sorry, before that it says that if anyone says he has no sin, yeah, uh, yeah, if you if you claim to be without sin, then the truth is not in us, and we call him to be a liar. Uh, yes, uh, confession of sin is uh, is a very pertinent thing in the Christian faith. But uh, very quickly, I want I also want to explain the difference between a relationship and fellowship that we have with God. Uh, we are the adopted children of God in Christ Jesus. And uh, therefore, when we sin, uh, our relationship is never broken. But our fellowship is mangled. It's lost sometimes because of our sin. And therefore, for the restoration of fellowship, we go and confess our sin before God. And 1 John 1, 9 is, uh, is usually called as the Christian bar of soap. Uh, you go and cleanse yourself with 1 John 1, 9. If you confess, your sins is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confession, uh, not just to God, sometimes to one another as well as James says, is the right thing to do in the Christian scheme of things. I think that's good, Raven. Number 13. Yeah, just read Proverbs 28, 13 and James 5, 16 quickly and go. Proverbs 28, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. James 5.16. James 5.16 says, uh, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Or a fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man avails much. Uh, some teachers say that when we pray, we should never say, if it be thy will, that betrays a lack of faith. Do you agree? Um, no, the answer is no, because uh, praying, if it be your will, in fact, shows a submission to God's sovereignty and God's character as well. James talks about it very quickly again in James 4, 13 through 17. 
you know, uh, you make all these plans about today and tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make profit. And uh, he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring about for you. What is your life? It's like a mist that appears uh, for a while and then vanishes is what he says. Instead, he clearly says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. So it's a clear exhortation from James uh, against our arrogance that uh, if it is the Lord's will, we will do something. And, uh, you know, you also see Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane going and praying exactly the same thing. He says, Lord, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. But thankfully, that's just the first part of the sentence. The second part, he says, and yet not my will, but yours be done. Um, so uh, it, is, it is perfectly uh, all right. And it is submission to the sovereignty of God to pray. Uh, if it is your will, let this be done. Let such and such a thing be done. Uh, having said that though, uh, Raven, I would say that uh, many a time the phrase, if it be thy will, is appended when people are not confident in their prayer. Um, that happens quite a bit. Yeah. So uh, I think people have uh, tried to address that issue and then go and say it is wrong to pray uh, if it be thy will. So at yeah. times, <laughs> I, I do believe that we use that phrase because somebody asks us to pray for them and we don't uh, necessarily, we are not actually praying with faith. So if we tend to use this phrase in that context, it's a warning to us as well. So there are both sides to it. And maybe and come to 15. All right, I think there's an important question. I think uh, this will also raise some questions. So yeah. I think, uh, George and Rabichan, can I spend about five minutes on this just to look at the entire context of it? Uh, those who subject to male leadership in the home teach the mutual submission of husbands and wives. They quote Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Uh, we should be able to answer this. Okay. Um, I think uh, it's, it's a multi-dimensional thing to answer this question. Uh, so I'd like to look at it from a couple of uh, angles and just look at what the context is saying here. Uh, by the way, I'll, I'll wait for about five seconds for you to all open to Ephesians chapter 5, which is what is being quoted here. Ephesians 5 verses 21 and on. Ephesians 5 verses 21 and on. So specifically in verse 21, be, sub, be subject to one another or submit to one another uh, is what is uh, being said here. And so uh, usually there is something that is uh, perpetrated that is called mutual submission and husbands and wives must submit to one another. Now, first of all, we need to understand how this one another language is used in Ephesians and also in the entirety of the New Testament. Whenever you see this one another language, uh, we need to understand that the actions here are reciprocal. There are two people involved, definitely. And the actions here are reciprocal, but nowhere in the New Testament this one another language is used where both the parties are called to do exactly the same thing. I'll explain that to you. For example, Paul himself writes, forgive one another. Now you have uh, an offender and the offended party, two parties here. So when Paul says forgive one another, it is a reciprocal thing, but both the parties are not called to do exactly the same thing in the sense that the offender will ask for forgiveness and the offended person will forgive the other person. In that sense, forgive one another. That's how the language of one another is used in the New Testament and also in the context here of Ephesians. 
uh, elsewhere in New Testament, especially in Revelation 6, it's saying that they were slaying one another. Uh, it's not saying that both people killed each other at the same time, but people were slaying and others were being killed. That's the language uh, that the New Testament uses when uh, it, say, it talks about or uses the phrase one another. So that's one another language. So when Paul says here, uh, you submit to one another and you uh, read the rest of the context, there is a way in which Paul writes his letters. Uh, now, this is the beauty of the Bible. The Bible is the inspired, inherent word of God. But God used men, you know, to write the Bible and their human personalities come through when, when you read the Bible. And if you're familiar with uh, Paul's writings, you will see a pattern in which he writes. For example, in most of his letters, he picks a topic and he summarizes it first. And then he explains it either in the same context or in the same letter later on. And we could give several examples of that. For example, in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says um, uh, the Thessalonians were waiting for Jesus to come from heaven uh, and rescue them from the coming wrath, is what he says. But he doesn't immediately explain that. He goes on in chapter 4, verse 13 and on to talk about rapture and also the day of the Lord in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. So that's how Paul writes his epistles. Same thing in 1 Corinthians as well. He just mentions about the Lord's Supper in uh, in chapter 10, explains that again in chapter 11. So he often summarizes something and then explains that either in the immediate context or later on. That's, that's the style of Paul's writing. Um, when you look at the same thing here, he is saying that subject to one another, but how that subjection should, uh, should uh, be seen practically, he's saying wives must submit to their husbands and husbands must love their wives. So submitting to one another does not mean that husbands and wives do exactly the same thing. Uh, he is not saying that wives must submit to husbands and husbands in the same sense and the same way are called to submit to their wives. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that the way submitting to one another works itself out in a family is where wives submit to their husbands and husbands love their wives just like Christ loved the church. And the, the analogy there is, the church submits to Christ, but Christ does not in any way, in the same sense, submit to the church. Um, also, uh, just in the larger context, just to give you uh, the larger context of Ephesians in a couple of minutes. If you turn with me to Ephesians 1.9, turn to Ephesians 1.9, please, which I think is the thematic verse of the entire book of Ephesians. I'll read verses one, uh, 9 and 10. Uh, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is summing up all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth in him. Now notice here, uh, Paul immediately in chapter one is talking about headship and submission. And he is saying that this is part of God's purpose of restoring all things under Christ's headship. So as part of God's purpose of restoring all things under Christ's headship in the present age, and also with a view to the age to come, he is bringing in concepts of headship and submission. We all submit to the headship of Christ. And then later on in the same book, he is talking about, actually there's no chapter breaking once again. It begins at verse 18, where he is talking about being filled with the spirit. And how does being filled with the spirit work itself out in our family? Uh, well, you, uh, husbands 
love their wives and wives submit to their husbands. Children love their parents. Parents respect their children. Slaves and masters, the same thing. So that is the entire context of it. Uh, so uh, there is no mutual submission here in the sense that uh, it is being talked about. And also the parallel passage in Colossians 3.18 says the same thing, that there is no mutual submission in the same sense. So that is the answer that I would give. Yeah, that's a very good, very thorough explanation, Ravanta. I don't have anything to add. I, I, I think only thing that I would, I would maybe put a little bit of add a little bit to that by saying that, um, I mean, this whole area, this whole business of submitting, uh, you know, wife submitting is again uh, somewhat controversial, just like headship of men in the church, right? Uh, wife submitting in the families. Again, this goes back to the whole uh, fall, right? And and the the conflict that came with the fall and there and the resulting mistreatment of women by men which leads to this but when you really look at it um, you know the husbands are really called to do something to me which is much 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 tougher thing okay than, than submitting and wife submitting which is to love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her so Paul is very clear that, that you are you as a husband are, are to be willing to sacrifice your own life Okay, for your wife, uh, not doesn't mean literally that you give up your life, but you that is the extent that is to be the extent of your love for your wife, right? And and uh, and then he goes on to say, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own body. So, in other words, rather than being selfish, selfishly loving yourself, you need to love your wife as if as if she was you. I mean, you know. Uh, so uh, the 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 call to the husband is actually a in many ways a far tougher thing, uh, you know, far more, not tougher, but, you know, a far more superior call. I mean, it's, it's, it requires a more, much more of that person to, because our tendency is to be selfish, right? When you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, you know, love, true love, agape love is, is not selfish, right? it's selfless. You know, our, our normal human fallen tendency is to be selfish and care about ourselves and expect, you know, somebody else to do things for us and and take care of our needs. And here he's saying, you know, you need to be the opposite, right? As a husband, you need to be the opposite towards your wife. So, uh, so we shouldn't look on the matter of wife submitting as some sort of, you know, and, and uh, you know, like giving the husband some special um, status or right, uh, you know, to uh, that, that, you know, it's it's not a one-way thing, right? It's definitely not a one-way thing. But as you said, the the submission happens. You know, it's not when he says submit to one another. It's not both of them doing the same thing. Okay, so I think that's where people go wrong is they try to equate that to say husbands should also submit to their wives, just as wives should submit to their husbands. That's not definitely not what it says. All right, I have a private question here. It says. Uh, uh, love one another explain it in terms of your statement on one another yes it applies the same thing to love one another as well now uh, when you love one another one person is loving the other the other person is receiving that love and now because it says one another uh, the roles are reversed in love now and so this person starts loving the other person uh, and uh, he's receiving that love as well so there's both reception and there is giving of love yeah. What I meant was both are not doing the same thing exactly at the same time. Uh, that's the kind of language. Okay. Um, coming to submit to one another, 
submission is arranging yourself arranging something under something the word is uppotaso that is that is arrange this one under this uppotaso yeah so you cannot arrange this under this and this on top at the same time so definitely does not mean you know uh, that you submit to her and she submits to you it's the same kind of uh, language that is being used about uh, military command uh, something is um, arranged under the leadership of such and such a captain or a commander or whatever the last one uh, you can read the question but i i, I want you to more this is a good question to address um, you know something that's very prevalent in the age of social media where we get all of these kind of things that you know without really evaluating we sort of tend to forward things so maybe we can address it from that perspective as well okay i think there's a specific case of uh, of something like that so i read the question and then do it yeah. yeah yeah okay so there is a tract that says darwin confessed christ on his deathbed the story is a hoax another says that nikita uh, khrushchev was converted to god and that's why he was uh, he was removed from power in the soviet union when i was a boy i this is william mcdonald saying it when i was a boy i read a tract that said the stones for the temple made of uh, indiana limestone were stored in new york warehouse ready to ship to israel um i i haven't read about uh, this uh, soviet union guy i don't know anything about <laughs> him probably probably uh, this is way before my time uh, every time i might, might talk about that i probably josh and also we talk about that uh, but i just talk about uh, i have read a little on this darwin thing uh, not extensively uh, i'll just talk a little bit about that there was a woman by the name of lady hope uh, she was uh, the daughter of an evangelist um, and uh, and uh, they lived very close to the home of uh, charles darwin in kent england and so uh, while traveling in america in the year 1915 she attended a conference in massachusetts and uh, during that visit she told the story that darwin just before his death uh, actually uh, when she visited him before uh, before his death he was on his deathbed and he was there for seven months bedridden and at that time he was sitting in bed and reading the bible and she went and asked him the question what book are you reading um he said uh, hebrews the royal book um and he also supposedly said that uh, as a young man i had uninformed ideas now later on this lady hope went on to claim that before her departure darwin actually asked her to return and speak to his servants uh, in a summer house and uh, when she asked what subject do i speak to them about darwin replied that it's about jesus christ but given the weight of evidence uh, and all of that from the rest of history it must be concluded that lady hope's story is unsupportable and even if she did actually visit darwin uh, there is no uh, confirmatory evidence that he actually became a christian uh, and uh, nowhere is it mentioned that he actually renounced evolution the theory of evolution so we don't know anything much about it and similarly a lot of hoaxes uh, come out on the internet um you know uh, especially in the day of whatsapp you know it's easy to forward just to the click of a button and so we see a lot of a uh, lot of things being floated around even recently there was something uh, on our whatsapp groups uh, uh, attributing it to cs lewis um, as somebody very familiar with lewis's writings i did not think immediately that 
it was it was Lewis's language. That's not the way Lewis writes. So I think uh, I think uh, it's uh, it's very easy for us to get to the right source of things and not believe anything immediately. Uh, check with the right books. There are good books available for for us, and primarily check with scripture if it is anything uh, related to scripture or theology or things like that. Yeah, I, I think maybe I'll just add to that, uh, Raven. I think uh, th this this one is a good one to end the don't be gullible uh, session on because this is one where we are very gullible. Okay? And the reason we're gullible is I think I think we as human beings have a tendency to look for validation, okay? Uh, validation of our belief, our faith, and we uh, we tend to look for it um, in popular culture, in, um, in, in historical events, and, uh, you know, so for example, historical events, you know, somebody puts out something that, that is theologically incorrect, but starts trying to do, do what I call newspaper eschatology, okay? So, um, you know, they, they look at some stuff that's going on and say, this is the mark of the beast or, or the, this is the chip that the Antichrist is going to put in our... I mean, the fact is, we don't know if any of that is true. But, but, but we are looking for these kind of validations, say, oh, therefore the scripture must be true. Okay? Uh, or, um, you know, some big uh, sports star claims that he's a believer in Christ or whatever, right? Uh, we want to publicize that. And then later on, we find that, you know, the guy's life is totally messed up or whatever, right? But again, we're looking for validation, say, oh, if that guy has received Christ, then, you know, the gospel must be real, right? Uh, uh, and, um, you know, so we're looking for, and, and we really need to get out of that habit. I mean, number one, we don't need popular culture. We don't need history. We don't need any of these things to validate our faith. Our faith should be grounded in the truth of the word of God and, the truth of who God is, and, and we should not be relying on these other things to validate us or to validate the faith of other believers. Okay, uh, of course we know that over the arc of history, you know, it, it aligns with with God's plans and all that kind of thing, right? But but uh, you know, our our faith should be founded on the objective truth of the Word of God, not the subjective feelings we get out of uh, you know out of people today. Uh, and what they say, or the fact that, you know, we, we think that, uh, or Darwin recanted this thing, and therefore, uh, you know, evolution is this big uh, enemy of creation, and so it invalidates all of that. Well, that, that's not, whether Darwin did that or not, it's really not going not to change the negative impact of evolution on history and science and all these kind of things, right? Uh, and, our, and our belief in creation is not based on whether Darwin recanted or not. You know, it's based on, you know, in the beginning, God, right? And what the word of God says. So, so I think that's where we need to um, be very careful and don't be gullible and don't look for validation of our faith in popular culture and popular people in, in history and in all of these kind of things, right? Um, you know, that, that would be sort of the generalizing of that, uh, of that question you know, to a broader scope. I think another area that excites people is philosophy. You want to take philosophy to prove the existence of God and all those kind of things. And uh, I, I find that uh, the present generation clicks, uh, they're moving towards philosophy and psychology with a, uh, with a lot more 
interest and there should be there. So it's just a <laughs> not there. Is that from an uh, apologetics point of view? Or isn't it from an apologetics point of view? That moving towards uh, the philosophical part? First of all, um, the whole thing about apologetics itself, um, now, we, the, how much are we going after apologetics? Is it needed? And why are we going for it is a good question. Certain times it is needed, I agree with that. But most of the times it is to, you know, apologetics becomes our foundation on which we stand. No. That's probably what George was trying to explain. Our validation comes from the scripture and not from all these other things. While we are called to defend faith and explain and help people to come to um, have a change in their outlook on scripture, etc., that should not be the platform from, from which we share the gospel. Uh, so, uh, Pradeep, yeah, I'm not sure if it's uh, connected, but when we say uh, certain people who uh, were against Christian values were eventually saved. Um, you know, again, there may not be a basis for it and all of that. Same way, I think uh, if we keep focusing on humans and humans are have a tendency to fall, again, goes back to, you know, the big time pastors or big time teachers that we always try to put on a pedestal. When we put them on a pedestal, when they fall, it's the same effect, right? Now, I think we should stay away from focusing on individuals who are all fallen. We are all fallen. We are all sinful and focus on the word of God, right? Because any one of those guys could fall and many have fallen and they haven't have also been reconciled, but you know, that is their story, but that should not affect us. or you know, that doesn't change the word of God. I think the source of truth should come back that we should come back to the word of God. I just wanted to just add. Yeah. Good point. Uh, so, George, George uh, sorry, Liju here. Sorry, I was, I was thinking that this was a. George call. Thomas. So this was my office call. <laughs> Hi, this is George Speaker. Yeah, so I think one point that we, uh, we could do maybe down the line is um, most of our background uh, that we have come from, or basically the assemblies, right? We have not probably. Uh, we have been told that because the Bible says so, and every reason is quite circular. We call it the circular reasoning. And uh, I think that uh, maybe it's also good from an apologetics perspective for us to know why we believe what we believe, why we believe the scripture is historical and it is not a myth, uh, for example. So some of those things uh, could help us down the line. And that uh, otherwise what will happen is somebody will just sow a plant a seed of doubt saying, uh, do you know what, what is written in scripture? Is that exactly true? How, how do you know what these guys have written? So the eyewitnesses theories and all of that and how we prove it in the code of law today can help tomorrow later, yeah, just, to found, just, just for the foundations. Yeah? Just a comment. Ravichar, you want to say something on that? No, um, yeah, I, I think that's a very valid point. To understand our foundation and this is worthwhile to believe, to trust, and move forward. We are there, yeah. Okay, so I think uh, that's the that's all the questions, right, Raven? Yes.
Okay, so uh, so we've done it in three sessions. That's good. Um, so I hope everybody found that. Uh, certainly, we had a lot of good discussion. Hopefully, it cleared out a lot of doubts, and uh, you know, uh, uh, it will at least uh, help you think through some of these things. Okay. Uh, just one, just yeah. one thing, uh, just one illustration, just to back up what uh, both Liju and uh, you, yourself and uh, Rebichan were saying. Uh, we were talking about uh, Robbie, one one brother that uh, Charlie and I have been talking to recently. Um, so he he came back with questions about the historicity of the scripture, the inerrancy of it, and all of that. And uh, we could answer some questions historically and about the foundations of scripture and everything. And uh, uh, so that, that helped him to have a foundation for his faith and, um, and, and be grounded a little bit. So I, I think uh, apologetics has a right place in one sense, uh, not to negate anything that was said here. Yes. Uh, let me explain my statement a little bit. Uh, many a time we take philosophy to be... Uh, the thing through which we come to know the truth and then plug on to that. Yeah. Uh, when you share the gospel, so we find that some people are very much plugged into philosophy and they, they cannot go beyond that. Um, the truth does not come through philosophy. Philosophy might help us to understand some things here and there. Uh, so also science might help us to understand certain things here and there. But to understand that um, the Bible is unique, it has been, it, it is the word of God, uh, you know, that is the right kind of apologetics and not to debate, okay, there is such and such a thing given in the scripture, is it right or wrong? We go to science, we go to philosophy to establish the veracity of that. I think that is the wrong approach uh, in, uh, with regard to apologetics that people take. Uh, for example, we look at um, the um, it, um, a day stopped in uh, in the book of Joshua. So people go and uh, explain it from science, and science is needed for them to establish that that is a fact. Or you take some other miracles and things like that. It always oh can can it be explained? Yes. Uh, there's one question here uh, that came to me personally. Uh, this is for the elders. Um, is there a time where we could talk about how Christian music ministries have baptism during their concerts? Is that right in a church? Is it an obedience to God's command? Uh, also, how should we let or be gullible to an instrument like music alone to bring us to God? What is a music ministry? Uh, I guess something to do like many hymn events, you know, <clears throat> big music, big jazzed up uh, events, uh, not many hymn. I'm just giving examples. So you just imagine that, and then you have on the side, you know, people accepting Christ with the music and with oh, okay. the and then they get baptized there. So I think the question is, is it of an emotional or is it? Yeah, real? yeah, that way. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I, I don't want to judge people, the genuineness of someone's conversion, but. Uh, but definitely when you create that sort of emotional, hyper-emotional kind of thing, a lot of people get swayed. And whether those are real or not, I don't know. I mean, human nature being what it is, it tends to, um, you know, result in a lot of 
sort of emotional conversions that don't last, right? Once the emotion is gone and they get back to the reality of life. So uh, one thing is that, you know, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay. So uh, if, if the word of God, the word of God is, is a prerequisite for salvation. Uh, you know, you, you can't, uh, you know, it's the word of God that saves, that the gospel, right? That saves. So if the gospel is not explained to somebody and the concept of sin is not explained and, 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 and all those kind of things and Christ's death and all these things, then, you know, if someone is just responding to, uh, you know, certainly some music has good teaching and good gospel in it. And can somebody hear that and get saved? That's quite possible. So I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to give a blanket answer to that and say that it's wrong or right. I mean, I think, you know, I would say it depends. Uh, what was the second part, Raymond? We should not let an instrument, I think you answered that question, George. That's, okay. Yes, the Lord can use music to minister to somebody and to bring uh, people to himself. Yeah, but again, you know, there are, there are some music that, that has very good teaching, very good biblically sound teaching or a gospel message. Okay. Now, if, if, it's, if the music is sort of one of those 7-Eleven songs, where the seven words are repeated 11 times, uh, and don't really have a meaningful message. And, you know, you say someone gets saved by listening. Is it possible? I suppose it is, but you know, I'd be a little skeptical of that. Okay. Um, you know, but, uh, but certainly there are songs that have depth of meaning and, and, and can someone read that song or listen to a song and, and this Holy Spirit works in their, in their minds and, uh, you know, and brings them to conviction of sin. I suppose that's possible. I know, Ravichan, maybe you can add something to this. I, I think you have covered it. I don't have much to add. You know, uh, Billy Graham too says they used uh, songs yeah, that ministered to hearts to, yep. uh, yeah. But, but again, again, it wasn't just the song. Trust yeah. me. You had George Beverly Shea and some others singing and, and, and the main thing in the in the Billy Graham crusade is the presentation of the gospel in words right uh, yes and in simplicity uh, you know and 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 but but yes the songs have a role in getting people preparing the ground and getting them to think about things but that's why I said ultimately it has to be the word of God you know, you so that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God yeah. I think uh, throughout uh, just just one point uh, Throughout church history, uh, churches have put songs first and the message next. And uh, people have always said that good songs that have gospel in it and the word of God in it, good theology in it, they tenderize the heart for the message that's going to be spoken. So I think that's a good uh, pattern to perhaps follow. All right. Any other questions, Raymond? Yes. Oh. Uh, I don't want to answer this. I I'll just leave it up to you. Uh, so uh, this question says, I know a pastor who prophesies wherever he meets certain families, he prays and then he says things related to work, studies, health, relationships at church, etc., etc. And certain things have happened, as he has said. Personally, I'm not comfortable with this and don't find it scriptural. Will you please clarify? Is this from the Lord? Uh, P.S. He doesn't do it for finances or publicly, but personally to families. 
basically it's talking about basically it's talking about a pastor who visits families and prophesies certain things about their work family relationships church and all of that and some of them have come true so is this from the lord is what the questioner is asking so obviously most of them have not come true that is implicit in the question and can, can i can i just answer with, with a small small yes, yes. so litty uh, usually when she talks to sisters who are carrying she usually has a has has an intuition that i won't say prophecy has an intuition <laughs> that it will be a boy, it will be boy or girl guess what she's right maybe 75% of the time does that make her a prophet i don't think so no the probability is that 50% so even, but she's she's written yeah. that it's 75 <laughs> so I, i can't call her a prophet but but you know so he, so i can be very good at being intuitive to know what could possibly happen but does does that mean that it's a gift of prophecy obviously he's wrong many times right so i mean go ahead rebichan sorry i think in the old testament if a prophet prophesied something and it did not come true he was to be taken out to on there so if you prophesy 100 things and one goes wrong you would still get killed yeah i i think i think this is sort of part of that whole signs and wonders movement right so so they they refer to the gift of the word of knowledge and and all those kind of things which which were part of that whole miracle gifts type of thing so uh, you know so it's all sort of part and parcel of that whole thing you know so yeah i mean i would be very skeptical of that and not get too caught up in those kind of things you know i think uh, everything that is needed for our life and belief and the way we need to live our lives is given in the word um and uh, what is going to happen in the future for the church at large and all of us is also given in the word in terms of the lord coming back and what's going to happen and all of that uh so i think we are just called to live by faith based on scriptural principles mm-hmm. rather than get into all of these kinds of prophetic things uh is how i would leave it yeah, and and i think it also i think a preoccupation with that with the with no wanting to know the future is a is a is a natural human thing because we feel like somehow knowing the future uh you know gives us more control right so it's it's like the whole pandemic thing right so so people go to soothsayers and uh, what do you call those people the palm readers yeah. and uh, tarot card people and all that and they 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 want to know you know it somehow gives them some uh, you know how long am i going to live am i going to make this much money am i not i will lose my job who am i going to get married uh, we, we we sort of have this preoccupation with the future and honestly as believers we need to just trust the lord for each day okay he says uh, you know the lord says don't worry about tomorrow uh, you know the today has got enough for, enough for you to worry about right so so live in today trusting the lord for for the rest of today and for the future and not get caught up in in all these kind of fantastical kind of you know prophecy and future telling and all these kind of things thank you uh, everybody and thank you raven for taking the time to work through those 16 questions and prepare for it i think uh, i think it was very useful sessions a good good uh, q and a and good uh, discussion as well david shrestha brother please uh, 
close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for this uh, time and this provision that you've given us, uh, members of this beloved fellowship and this beloved to come together uh, in a time of studying, in a time of contemplation, in a time of uh, learning more about you, learning more about you've given us, learning more about what we as believers ought to do and what we ought not to do. And uh, thank you for providing us with this uh, uh, with this app during this time, Father. Many of us have been using this over the past few weeks to be in touch with others, Father, to use it as a tool for the better, Father, your word. Thank you that you have provided for all of us. Thank you that you have kept us all safe during this time, Father. Father, I thank you for each and every member of this church, Father, and I thank you for the elders that we have, Father. Thank you for their instruction. Thank you for uh, speaking through them during this time. Thank you, uh, thank you for providing your uh, uh, your Holy Spirit among us as you speak directly to our hearts and our minds during this time. Yeah. Thank you for the morning worship that you allowed us to have, that even though each of us are in our own homes isolated in this time of uncertainty and isolated in this time of panic around the world, Father, you provided us with a safe enclave, Father, a time of fellowship and service and worship. Uh, as a church, even if we are physically separate, Father, you have united our hearts and spirit. Uh, once again, Father, I thank you for this time you've given us, for this time of teaching and this time of learning. Uh, I commit each and every member of this church into your hands, Father. Uh, we all thank you for your unending and abounding mercies and your grace. Father. all these things in the most precious name for Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ.